Let me invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the first book of the Bible. Tonight we are going to be in Genesis chapter 22. Did I say tonight, this morning? I meant tonight. <laughs> you never know with how sometimes these things go. I'm always that one who's like, it's morning. No, it's night. So as we gather tonight for Maundy Thursday, I'm reminded once again, one of the things that sets us apart from other people in the world today. Because tonight we have gathered to do something particularly Christian. We are gathering to remember. We are gathering to be reminded. But what are we remembering? We are remembering real events. We are recalling real happenings, real occurrences. The Christian life is a life of bringing to mind real events in real places with real people. And tonight we come specifically to think about a real night with real people where a real man, Jesus Christ, met for the last time with his disciples. Where this is a man, but more than a man, we understand he is God incarnate come into the world to save us. And so it is right and it is good for us to remember these things. As Christians, we can never become comfortable with these stories. It's so easy for familiarity to dull us in our responses. So we must fight these temptations. We must fight the temptation to become comfortable for these special holy moments to numb, to become numb to our senses. And so to help us tonight as we think about an event that you have probably thought of before, I want us to consider also another similar text, one that is also very familiar to you. And we're going to be looking at the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 15. We're not going to be looking at the whole section. It's a whole section. Um, But what we're going to be doing is that we're going to be looking at one of the main emotional climaxes of this story. You see, the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is one of the most important stories in the Old Testament. It is one of these stories where major biblical themes and different threads from all throughout Scripture come together in this one moment. And you could say that in in the grand scheme of things, the whole story of redemption right here is hanging in the balance Everything is at risk. Going back to the beginnings of Genesis, we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that this world that we live in, that we inhabit, is a world that God created and that it is good and it is perfect. And into this world, God placed two people, Adam and Eve, and he gave them a commission, spread my glory throughout this entire place. But quickly, this world becomes corrupted As Adam and Eve reject God's authority, they become their own lords, their own masters. They listen to their own way, which is shown by them rejecting God's word and eating the fruits. They kick off God's rule. And because of that, we find ourselves in a post-Genesis 3 world. If you think about it, every sickness, every sin, every form of suffering Every death just points to what happened a long time ago in a garden. But in Genesis 3.15, right on the heels of everything seeming to be falling apart, there comes a promise. 
one born of woman and offspring would come and he would conquer the serpent and bring blessing into the world. And much of the Genesis narrative is chasing this promise. We're constantly asking the question, who is the seed? Who is the one who will fulfill this promise from Genesis 3.15? Who is the one who's going to make all things right? And many times, different children come into the world with these high expectations. Even Adam's own son, Abel, came into the world with this expectation. Adam's great-grandson, great-great-grandson, Noah, he comes in with great expectations. But the whole biblical narrative in Genesis is tracing this theme. Who is the offspring? Who is going to bring the blessings that come? And it's important to remember that one of those offspring, one of those children that gets particular attention is Isaac. Isaac is a child born of promise to Abraham and Sarah in old age. God gave Abraham a promise all the way back in Genesis 12, 10 chapters back, that through Abraham and through his offspring, blessing, the undoing of the curse would come into the world. This Genesis 3.15 promise is going to narrow in on the family of Abraham. And in Genesis 22, everything that God has promised Everything that God has revealed, everything that God has seemed to put into place is now on the line as God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Let's read verses one and two together. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. It's an incredible command, isn't it? The entire biblical narrative is chasing an offspring. And then what? Take your son, your only son, and go and offer him as a burnt offering. The command in Genesis 22-2 has created quite a stir among every generation of Bible readers. That if you just look at the great examples, if you're wanting a great attack upon Christianity, if you're wanting to look at, hey, this God of the Bible is cruel. Hey, this God believes in moral absurdity. Just just look here. Even later in the Old Testament, God will claim and he will judge the surrounding nations and even his own people for offering up their children as sacrifices. And yet, what? What does God ask? Sacrifice your son. What is God doing? Also, you have to remember that Isaac is no ordinary child. He is the miracle child. You could essentially say that Isaac is a walking picture of God's miraculous works and blessing. Remember, Abraham and Sarah are old. If you're trying to kickstart a nation, Don't grab an old couple. And this is also a couple that long ago resigned that they were not going to have kids. That time came and went until when Abraham was 75 years old. The Lord goes to him and gives him an amazing promise. You're going to have a son. Not only that, you are going to be a great nation. I will bless you through your offspring. 
But Abraham and Sarah wait more than 25 years to fulfill this promise. And it comes. The promised son is here. And yet God seems to want to put a knife through the heart of his own promises. How do we understand this? How are we to reconcile this story where everything seems barreling towards this son and now everything is at risk? Now, I think that the command, the way to understand the story is to not view it as a prescriptive command or a moral imperative for us, or all of us would be in lots of good trouble, good being we deserve to be in trouble. This is not a go and do likewise type of command. But at the same time, I think that God is setting up an image here in this narrative that God wants Abraham to remember. And then by extension tonight, God is setting up an image that he wants us to remember as well. Because you have to see here, when God is setting up this situation, which at first appears outlandish, even contrary to his nature, contrary to his character, contrary to all that God's revealed, we need to take our natural and legitimate moral concerns, put it on the side for a moment, and just ask, what does God want us to see? Because God knows exactly what he's doing. And he wants us to see something. Even though Isaac's life is the one who's hanging in the balance, you would think that, you know, this must be a giant test of faith of Isaac. But actually it's interesting because as the whole narrative unfolds, the focus is on Abraham's faith. It has nothing to do with Isaac. For much of the story, he's just tagging along, not knowing what God's doing in the background. Look down at verse 3 with me. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So we see quickly that Abraham has reached a level of faith and trust in God's character that he obeys. Now, if you know Abraham, he's not always quick to obey. For a long time, he's been quick to disobey, quick to trust what he sees, not what God has said. But here, against every natural fatherly inhibition. He obeys in spite of all that Abraham thinks he understands about how this promise ought to be fulfilled. He goes, he listens. So remember, let's ask the question, what is God trying to show us? I think the way to do that, let's look at a few important and significant details in this text. First, go back to verse two with me. It's important to see what God says concerning Isaac. He says, and look closely, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Do you see the stress? Do you see the emphasis? Even as God is giving Abraham this incredible command, he is stressing the significance of Isaac to Abraham. God knows that he is going right after Abraham's heart in this command. God even highlights Abraham's love for Isaac and how dear Isaac is to Abraham. So let's put a pin in that detail, okay? God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, his beloved son. 
Put a pin in that. Second, Abraham, if you look at the text, is going to the land of Moriah. He's going to a specific land, a specific mountain. He is traveling, it says in verse 34 of chapter 21, that he has been sojourning in the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines were seafaring people. And so that would mean that Abraham would have been traveling from the Mediterranean coast line into the land of Canaan and in going to this mountain that the Lord is pointing him to. But it's important to note that geography is very important in this story. Mount Moriah at this time is not named, but at the end of this story, what happens on this mountain will give the mountain its name. So one pin, put one pin in, the sacrifice of a beloved son, and the other pin in the mountain. Not literally in the mountain, but you know what I'm saying. Mount Moriah. So sacrifice of son, Mount Moriah. Now, at verse 5, we see that Abraham has reached the point where he must journey alone and leaves his son behind. Let's read verses 3 through 5 together. Abraham rose up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and took his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now pay particular attention to what Abraham is saying there in verse five. He says, I and the boy both will go there and worship and come again to you. It may not be clear in the English, but in the Hebrew, Abraham's command communicates that he expects at this point that both him and Isaac will return. At this point, we continue to see Abraham's resolved faith. Abraham tells his servants that he expects I and the boy will return when we're done sacrificing on the mountain. What do you think is going on in Abraham's mind? How can he be so confident? The author of Hebrew actually helps us out here. In commenting on this story in chapter 11 of the letter to the Hebrews, this is how he comments through the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, he, being Abraham, considered that God was able to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, informs us that Abraham fully expects the return of his son, even as he fully intends to fulfill God's command to sacrifice his son. Even if Abraham has to use the knife, God will raise Isaac from the dead. Verses 6 and 7. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. He went both of them together. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? The striking image, is it? Isn't it? We have the reader's privilege. We know what Isaac doesn't know in this moment. We know why Abraham and Isaac are there. We see Abraham and Isaac walking up this mountain. Isaac, a bundle of wood on his back. That would be required for the sacrifice. Abraham, 
instruments of sacrifice in his hand, a torch, fire, and a knife. Now, I, I, I could imagine that both Abraham and Isaac at this point are walking in silence. Abraham is walking in silence as he's trying to think through just the implications of everything, all that he's lived his life for, all that he's known, just pounding through his head in this moment. But then Isaac probably has that childlike mind that's just, you know, innocently taking in what's all happening around him. He's looking at where he's going. He's making observations, looking at the scenery. But then he starts putting some pieces together. Isaac's seen burnt offerings before. He knows what needs to go into one. But there's a missing ingredient. All right, all right. Here we go again. Another sacrifice. It's for a sacrifice. You need wood. Check. Dad's got the knife. Yeah. Oh, wait, how are we going to start that fire? Uh, yeah, Dad's got that too. Wait a minute. Hey, hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And it's the perfect question that takes all of the tension in this text and sends it skyrocketing. Because it is through the mouth of this boy that Abraham realizes and that we realize a very important lesson that God has for Abraham and then that God has for us. How exactly is Isaac a child through whom blessing would come into the world? How exactly is this supposed to work? Well, why do we need to be blessed in the first place? Let's go back to the garden. Why do we need blessing? Because God said to Adam and Eve that whenever they ate of the fruit, that they would die. Genesis 2.17 tells us this, that God commanded Adam, once you eat of this fruit, you deserve death. And God was right. Because Adam sinned, he earned the pronouncement, guilty. You must die. But, but Adam and Eve don't die immediately. Yes, there are various components of death which are introduced into the world here. There's spiritual death. There's universal corruption. There's universal guilt. But even within the context of the curse of sin, there's not the immediate exercise of death and judgment. There's a promise. There's a hope. But don't let that take away from you that all the way back in Genesis 3, the problem that we have is death. You know, if you're honest, if you talk to anyone in the world today, all of us have an internal sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. That a world, a reality marked by sin, suffering, death, disease, disasters, all of these are things that are not the way it's supposed to be. I think you can talk to anyone on the street about that. Something is wrong. We all have different assessments of it. But in touching on that thread, every person knows that death and sin are not natural. These things have invaded a perfect and good world, which God has created. The problem is, though, is that we, in sin, because of sin, we have all turned away from God all of us have looked into God's face and said, you aren't righteous, you're not good, you're not worthy of my submission and respect, I'm going to run the show. 
I'm going to live my life, my way, my authority. And in doing that simple turning away, all of us have, created, have committed the greatest sin, cosmic treason. And because we have sinned against an infinite creator, we have earned an infinite punishment. And every person in this room left to themselves has this pronouncement from the throne. Guilty. This is why death has such a grip on humanity. The universal reality of death just points to the universal reality of guilt, which points to the universal reality of sin. So let's go back to this idea of blessing. Why do we need a blessing? Why do we need to be blessed? Because of sin and death. So how can an offspring help us? And then what happens to this sin, guilt, death problem? How does blessing really come into the world through Abraham's offspring, Isaac? Because God in this text is showing us the costliness of blessing. God shows Abraham and God shows us that blessing would come through substitution, would come through sacrifice. And at this point, it's important to grab two other streams that would have been going through this text that the people of Israel would have understood very well. The first one comes from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is not your favorite book. It's where many Bible reading plans go to die. But Leviticus is a book written to the people of Israel in the middle of them leaving Egypt to getting to the, the Can- to promised land to Canaan but it's specifically directed to one family of Israel. And it's the family of the Levites that God had determined through some historical events to set them up as priests who would serve between God and the people at the temple and then at the tabernacle. But priests had a very important role. They kept everyone alive. No kidding. They had the responsibility of trying to navigate this nuclear relationship between a holy, just, and righteous God and a sinful people who had no desire to serve God or love God or listen to him. And so the priests had to mediate this relationship by trying to resolve the natural guilt between these two and then also trying to clean up the people's sin problem. So the book of Leviticus actually begins with a list of instructions of different sacrifices, which the people would offer to God. And the first one is one that we have already run to in our text in Genesis 22, and that is the burnt offering. In Leviticus 1, verses 3 through 4, um, the, uh, Moses writes this, if, he, uh, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and that he may be accepted before the people. He, the sacrificer, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted from, for him. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, you need to remember that the people of Israel were very familiar with burnt offerings and would have immediately understood the significance in Genesis 22. The burnt offering is an offering of atonement, a offering that deals with sin through substitution. 
So what would happen is that you would have a sacrificer who comes and presents himself and they would bring a lamb, but in the presence of God and in the presence of the priest, he would lay his hands on the head of the lamb. He would say, I take my, this lamb, I put my hands on this lamb. I realize in doing this that I am guilty. I understand God's righteous declaration of my guilt. But instead of me dying, I am presenting this lamb to stand in my place. It will die so that I can live. I accept this judgment and it will stand in my place. Have you ever watched an animal die? My in-laws have a farm and each year we will process a whole batch of meat chickens. Now, slaughtering animals is always something that takes a lot of time to get used to. But I think the thing that threw me off the first time was this short moment of waiting. Because what we would do is that we would take these chickens and then we would throw them, we'd pick them upside down, we would throw them upside down, and we'd have these metal cones that we'd put them through and then we'd grab the necks and we'd pull it out. And so it exposes the necks, they, they black out immediately because they, they immediately lost the blood, take a knife, lacerate the throat, hold it, hold their feet. Because at that point, you're now caught in a struggle for life. Because as, as you're trying to bleed this animal out, it is in every fiber of existence trying to fight and to stir just to have some flash fighting chance. You watch the muscles spasm. You watch the eyes flicker. And while our family wasn't, you know, participating in ceremonial sacrifices, I do appreciate the sacrifice because it's delicious. But outside of that, each time I usually reach a point where I come back to these sacrifices. Because just imagine having to come up to a ram or an ox and you have just lacerated one of its major arteries. And then you're holding it down with all of your strength. And you're watching it fight for life. And at some point in this, something hits you. Because as you look at this animal, you start to ask yourself the question, why? Why is this here? This innocent animal. And at this point, as you're looking at the animal, it hits you. Gosh. This animal is dying because of me. I deserve this. If it wasn't for this animal, that would be me. So as the Lord is telling Abraham in verse 2 to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, this is what God is telling Abraham. Abraham, if you're going to be blessed, we got to deal with the sin problem. You're guilty. And if you want to be blessed, your son must serve as your substitute. Now also, the story of Abraham would have been very personal to the first audience as well, the people of Israel. Because every Israelite family with a firstborn son Every dad would have known exactly what it was like to be in Abraham's shoes. Because this generation also went through one critical night for themselves when the lives of every one of their sons hung in the balance. And for that, think with me for a second about the Exodus 12 and the story of the Passover. 
Many of you know the story of the Passover. Right before God leads his people out of Egypt, he wants to humble this nation, this proud nation that stood up in front of God. And in order to, to exert his power and authority, he goes exactly over the main source of their strength, their sons, particularly Pharaoh's son, who would have stood in line as the next literal embodiment of God. And God goes right after it. But for the people of Israel, this last plague serves a different purpose. You know, the main purpose of this is for Pharaoh, and yet Israel is not immune from judgment. Why? Because the Passover intimately reminds every family of Israel, every offspring of Abraham, of the problem of sin. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, every Israelite was also a sinner and deserved only judgment. And so, if God was going to bring Israel out of Egypt, he must still deal with their sin problem in a way that would haunt them forever. And so, God designs their departure so that they would have an image to remember their sin problem in a strikingly intimate way. For salvation would only come to Israel through substitutionary atonement. One theologian comments, The Lord could have rescued Israel simply by destroying all the firstborn in Egypt. The Passover event, however, reminds Israel that they deserve judgment as well. The Lord would pass over the firstborn in Israel only if blood was applied to the lintel and and doorposts of the house. The Lord impressed upon Israel that they were not inherently better than the Egyptians. They were rescued from the wrath of the Lord only if they responded in faith to his instructions by putting blood of lambs on their houses. So if salvation was to come to the people of Israel and they were to be delivered, they had to do one thing first. They had to agree with God's moral assessment of them. I am a sinner. I deserve death. And then they have to recognize the danger that's for the whole family, represented in the son, the legacy, the one who inherits everything. And they must sacrifice a lamb to satisfy the death sentence that hangs over this family. I couldn't imagine, honestly, being an Israelite's father that night. Because as you're sitting there, you know what's coming. And then you hear the ear screeching that starts. First, it's far away in, in Egypt. moves a little closer. And then, sadly enough, it comes too close for home as you realize that your friends, your neighbors, didn't believe. And as you're sitting there and there's screaming and there's weeping happening all around the house, you just look at your son and you hold him as tight as you can while you're looking to that blood and you're trusting, you're believing. My son is safe because of the blood. Where's the lamb? It's the question that would have haunted Abraham. Oh, how desperately he wanted one. (laughs) 
right here. But no. It's a question that would have haunted the Israelites hearing this story and then thinking about their own sons that literally a lamb kept their son alive. And honestly, it's a question that should haunt you. Where is the lamb? Where is your lamb? Because I wonder if you're honest with yourself, if you truly understand what your sins deserve. Our culture tends to sanitize death. We use euphemisms and to describe it. You know, she, she passed away. He's, he's gone to a better place. People today will die quietly on, in medical beds, away from homes, away from houses, on morphine drips. You know, you go to the store, you get your nice meat. It's all clean and packaged. And your kids realize 10 years later where it actually comes from. There's no trace of the original owner. You know, to be honest, I think one of the main reasons why our culture right now is responding so poorly to COVID is because all of us, if we're honest, just really want to avoid death. Wear this mask. Do this. Do that. Take that vaccine. Do this. Because we must solve this COVID issue. It's for the first time too invasive. It's too close to home. I need to be protected from death. You may do something wrong. I might suffer. I don't deserve to die. I have a right to live. But friends, the drum beat of time just pushes all of us toward our ends. If you were to zoom out and to watch every person at once, one of the realities that you figure out really quick that's universal is the reality of death. Because every moment, every second, someone else dies. Then another then another, and another. And we all have a date. We all have a time. The scientist and theologian Blaine Pascal made this comment about death. Imagine a number of men in chains, all under the sentence of death, some of who are each day butchered in the sight of others, those remaining seeing their own condition and that of their fellows. And looking at each other with grief and despair, await their turn. This is the image of the human condition. Not only that we die, because of sin we deserve wrath and judgment. Because God's not going to forget our cosmic rebellion. He's not going to look too lightly over it. And so because of our sin, we deserve not only death, but wrath, eternal judgment. Matthew 13, Jesus makes this comment. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friend, I don't know maybe what brought you here tonight. I don't know what burdens you carry. I don't know what questions or burning things you think are at the forefront of your mind. But I want you to just pay attention here for a second. Because if you were honest, if you were to cut back everything that tends to occupy our minds, that if you realize it, at the end of the day, you have a problem. 
It is a death sentence. It is sin. It is wrath. It is judgment. And if you're honest, the fact that you're a sinner isn't just that you're doing the worst sins you can do. I'm not a Hitler. I'm not a mass murderer. But you have committed the greatest offense. Naturally, you don't give God the honor and the glory he deserves. Left to yourself, your heart goes your way. That's all it takes. Because God deserves all of our allegiance and God deserves all of our honor and praise because he created us. And what do we do? We go our own way. We exalt ourselves. So maybe you haven't thought about it, but one of the most important questions that you should be asking yourself tonight is this. Where is the lamb? Because Abraham needs a lamb. Isaac needs a lamb. People of Israel need a lamb. I need a lamb. And so do you. For the author of Hebrew tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this reality actually introduces another fascinating tension back in our story of Genesis 22. Because as I just made reference to, how can Isaac actually serve as a substitute? He himself is a sinner. He needs his own lamb. And to make that point for us and for Abraham, God leads Abraham all the way up to the sacrifice, to the moment of literally holding the knife over his son before he interjects. Let's start reading in verse 7 again. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in, the, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. As Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, he, behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now within this story, the Lord fulfills what Abraham has believed by faith all along. We stopped for a second at the question, where is the lamb? Abraham responds in verse 8, the Lord will provide. And provided, God did. In the last moment, the Lord stays Abraham's hand. And there is a substitution the ram's there. The sacrifice is finished. The son is saved. But I do wonder, as Abraham walked away from that mountain, if he didn't turn back and didn't ask himself, why? 
Why all of it? Why the mountain? This place now called on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What's the point? Why the theatrics? Why take Abraham on the emotional roller coaster? Why even play games with the promised offspring? Because God wanted Abraham to see something. God wanted Abraham at the end of his life to see or to even to participate in God's plan for Abraham's offspring. In our story, Abraham had a unique privilege of seeing what would finally happen to that offspring of the woman. What would happen to his own son who would one day bring blessings into the world? Because friends, this is what Jesus says to when he says to the Jews. This is what Jesus means when he says to the Jews in John 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. What did Abraham see? Abraham saw as one Bible commentator puts it, that the child of promise, beloved of his father, is to be slain on Mount Moriah. Because in Genesis 22, God takes Abraham step by step for his own plan for the offspring of Abraham, who would not only be the offspring of Abraham, but would be God's own son, because many of you guys know that in Chronicles, um, Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it actually fills us in on what would happen to this very interesting place. Eventually, Abraham's far-off grandson, King Solomon, would build the temple of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And to this city, and to that same mountain, 2,000 years later, a father would walk his beloved son, Jesus, fully God, fully man, a son with whom the father was well pleased, a son beloved by his father. But this time, there would be no substitute. There would be no lamb because this time, Jesus would be the lamb. Jesus would be the lamb as the substitute for sinners. Jesus is the lamb for you. The obedient son who obeyed his father to the end, even to the point of death, death on a cross. So how could God tell Abraham to take his son and offer him as a burnt offering? Because God was not telling Abraham to do anything that he had not already planned to do himself. And when God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, the reason why literally God the Father's heart pours out over Isaac is because in Isaac, God the Father also sees his own son. Friends, do you see it? Do you see the lamb? It is Jesus. He is the one that God has provided for us. He is the lamb who was substituted in the place of sinners. He is the one who goes up on the mountain. He is the one whose blood 
covers our sins. And so with John the Baptist, we say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, where's the Lamb? It's Jesus. See him at the cross. If you're not a Christian, you need to know something tonight. You have a problem. You need a lamb, and God has given it to you. It is Jesus who came into the world to live the life that you could never live and to die the death that you deserved, and so that by you placing your faith in him, he will be your lamb. He will be your substitute. Your debt would be clean. So come to him. Come. Like Jesus, like the Israels of old, the Israelites of old, look to him and say, I take this lamb. I put my hands on his head before God's presence. And in doing so, I communicate to everyone that I know I am a sinner. I deserve this judgment and I am transferring my guilt to Jesus. And he will die in my place. And because Jesus died, I can live. Jesus is the lamb. And friends, today, Jesus can be your lamb. Let's pray. Father, we see in this text just the brief moment of your love for the son. And yet you gave up your son for us a sinful, rebellious people who need a lamb because of our sin problem. Father, you have provided abundantly. Father, you know what's going on in the hearts of the people who are out there. Maybe there are some people here tonight who have never truly just considered their need. They've never realized how big of a problem that they have before you. They never haven't fully realized what's awaiting them in in death and judgment. And so, Father, for them, I ask that right now that you would work in their hearts, that you would help them to see that you have provided so much for them in Jesus. If they come to you, if they believe, they can be saved. And so, Father, for for those of us who follow you, may we never forget the Lamb. May we always remember the one that you gave to save us from our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.